What comes to your mind when you hear the words church discipline? A few years ago, I didn't really have a concept of what that even was. I tended to think of excommunication, this thing that happened, goodness, I guess back in the 1500s, you know, that's what I had in my mind, kind of the Martin Luther Reformation period, um, when the Catholic Church would excommunicate someone, would deem them, you know, bound for hell forever and no longer a part of the church. And so, obviously, when I heard the words church discipline, it sounded like something mean and honestly unbiblical. However, church discipline is biblical and is the means by which God keeps people in the faith. And I think that if we did it more often, we would have much healthier churches, much more holy lives. I think the consequences are endless. And, and good. And so we're going to study what is church discipline? When do we do it? How do we do it? To whom uh, do we do it? How is it? What even is it? And so one thing I want to say up front is that church discipline is not a weapon that we wield to harm. It is a medicine, a healing balm that we give to restore. So let's dive in. What is church discipline and how does God want us to use it. I just want to say up front that a very common scenario that I have seen as someone who helps women in domestic violence situations is when a husband and a wife go to church together, they profess faith in Christ, and it turns out that he is abusing her, and she brings this to the pastor or other elders. And long story short, he never truly repents. He never changes. Um, He continues to go and be part of the church. Usually, eventually she will leave because she is tired of being abused and threatened and manipulated. Um, And she's tried everything that she can to make things work. And he has not budged an inch. And he continues to be a part of this church. He continues to think that he is a Christian, that he can live this way, that he can be abusive and harmful to the one person he's supposed to love more than anyone. And yet nothing is done about it. Um, He's never confronted. He just continues going to Sunday morning service every week and he never faces any consequences. I just want to say up front that that's not biblical. That is not God's design or God's desire for situations like that. Um, I can't tell you, you know, how many times I have known people just who go to church who say that they follow Christ and are just living in unrepentant sin, okay, a pattern of sin. I want to be up front and say that, of course, we are all sinners. I am not perfect, Okay, the Bible's very clear on that, that even when we're in Christ, we still have this fallen nature that we battle with and we still sin, okay? However, the Bible clearly teaches that a mark of a true Christian is that they are no longer a slave to sin, but they are a slave to righteousness. We no longer have a pattern of sin in our life. We are not supposed to have 
unrepentant, continual sin that we walk in and that we don't turn away from. Okay, so it's one thing if you tell a lie and you repent of that and say, I'm so sorry, I don't know why I did that, I lied, versus you have a habit of lying and you don't repent for it, you never change. And just real quick side note, repentance is not just saying you're sorry, okay? Biblically, repentance is a, a conviction that produces changed behavior, okay? So that being said, what are we supposed to do biblically when someone claims to be a follower of Christ and they are living in unrepentant sin? We're going to look at a few verses on how we are to react uh, personally, kind of one-on-one, and how we are to react as a church and what church discipline is supposed to look like and how, when it is done rightly, it is a beautiful, good thing that produces good, godly results. The first verse that we're going to look at is from Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. This is Jesus talking. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So notice you go to him or her in person first, just between you guys. Okay, this is also to prevent gossiping. You need to deal with things face-to-face. That's what us Christians do. Um, If at that point it's not a successful conversation, you can take uh, a couple people with you, one or two. Um, It's not an exact formula. It's not like it must be two, just one or two people. Um, You don't want to take several people because I'm sure it could bombard them. I don't know all the reasons. I just know that this is what Jesus says, but I would assume that it's just wise not to bring a group of seven or eight people uh, to confront somebody. So just take a friend or two with you. You guys talk, and if it still doesn't go over well, then you go to the church, okay? Well, what does it look like to go to the church? What what does that mean? Now, for the sake of time, we're not going to go into every possible verse that addresses this because sometimes we have verses that tell us just to forgive and move on, to not bring every little sin that someone does before them. But if someone has specifically sinned against you and it's just not something that you are able to move past, perhaps you have a root of bitterness, you want to reconcile, you feel this need to talk things through, then that is when you can go to your brother or sister and that's when you do the following steps that Jesus tells us to do. But it doesn't mean that if, you know, somebody has a bad attitude uh, or has a bad day every once in a while that you're to go and, and shame them for it. No, this is very clearly when they sin against you in a big, a big way. Our second verse is going to come from 1 Corinthians 5, and this is uh, Paul speaking to the church in Corinth, and he's going to give us a specific example of someone who has done some pretty heinous sin and how the church ought to react. So beginning in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians uh, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. 
For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So he keeps going um, a little bit on how the people of God are not to be sexually immoral, are not to be like lost people. And so he basically says, look, this man in your congregation has slept with his stepmom and you're arrogant about it. You're kind of making, making light of it, so to speak. Get rid of him so that not just, he doesn't say just get rid of him, forget him. He's excommunicated. He's going to hell. He says, no, get rid of him, purge him from among you so that he might be saved. Okay. So there is this healthy God designed shame of confronting someone and saying, look, you're not repentant of this. You are boasting about it. You think it's funny or you think it's not a big deal. No, this is a big deal. And Paul says, you know, a little, um, you know, a bad egg or a bad apple among you can ruin those around you. So we don't want a church that is full of hypocrites. I mean, we have enough of that, do we not? I mean, what is the one of the major or top complaints that the world has about Christians and churches. They're hypocrites. They say not to do something, and then they do it, and it's not a big deal when they do it, or they say it's not a big deal. How much more consistent could we be to a watching, watching world if we took sin seriously? Now, if he had, you know, immediately repented and not boasted about it, that would be different. But Paul makes it sound like they're arrogant about it. They're boastful even, like maybe some kind of weird pride about it or they think it's funny or not a big deal. But Paul is taking this very, very seriously. So he's telling the church, not just one or two people here, he's telling the church like, um, excuse me, you all need to do something about this. So that's exactly what they do. But let's find out the rest of his story. We're going to go to 2 Corinthians Second Corinthians chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 4. So this is the second letter that Paul has written to the church at Corinth. And he's referencing the first letter he wrote to them when it comes to what this man did with his stepmother. It's verse 2 of chapter 2. Or, excuse me, verse 3 of chapter 2. And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him 
or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Some translations say we are not ignorant of his schemes. So it's very interesting. Paul basically says, okay, the punishment you gave him was enough. And what was the punishment? Well, it tells us in 1 Corinthians it was to kick him out of the church, basically, until he was repentant, okay? So we don't just kick a repentant person out of the church. It's not how we function, okay? And no one is ever, quote, excommunicated. We do not have the power and the authority to say that someone is definitely going to hell. All we are called to do is look at their life, look at their fruit, and say, hmm, brother, I'm just not so sure what's going on here. You say you're in Christ. We're supposed to be a new creation. We're supposed to be obedient to him. That's a mark of a true believer. And you're not obedient to him. You are living an unrepentant sin. You have a pattern of sin. And you don't seem to be heartbroken about it. You're not changing your behavior. So we can no longer with confidence say that we think that you are in Christ. And so we cannot allow you to be part of our church because we must distinguish ourselves from the world. We can't pollute the church with just nastiness and filth and be okay with it. But whenever you do repent, we love you. We want you to come back. We welcome you back. And I can tell you from personal experience, having seen some people go through church discipline, that it is a painful thing for them to lose their friends. You know, when you are involved in church and those are your closest relationships, you know, when you choose to live in sin, the consequences are bad. Not only eternally, as in you might not make it to heaven, but in the here and now, if you have church discipline done to you and your church family, your friends no longer associate with you, that is a very painful thing. But it is painful by design. It is meant to shake you to your senses, to have you snap out of whatever hold that sin has on you so that you can see that Jesus is better that sin does not deliver what it promises. And whenever you are ready to come back, the church awaits you with open arms. Paul says we are to forgive. That, you know, Satan would have us not forgive. Satan would have us continue to be hard with this person and they would just be so sorrowful. And that's not healthy either. So I want to be very clear on that, that we are not to be just hard-hearted, mean people. We are to take sin seriously, but we are also to take forgiveness seriously. The last verse I'm going to read from is beginning in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
When it says if anyone is caught in any transgression, that's where English gets a little confusing. The word caught doesn't mean caught as in found out, but rather caught as in stuck. If you are caught in a trap, right? Like if you're like animals, you know, when you're um, that are being hunted or whatever, and they get their legs stuck in a trap, they're caught in a trap. Not that they're found out, but they are stuck. So if anyone is caught in any transgression, so if sin has taken them over, does it say we are to be mean and kick them out? No, it says we who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. In other words, you are just as capable as anyone else of falling in sin. I know, I know that I know that I know that the only thing that is keeping me in Christ is Christ. Because if I could lose my salvation, I would. That's why I did an earlier podcast on can we lose our salvation because I don't believe that we can. Um, I actually believe that the Bible teaches that church discipline is a means by which we distinguish true believers from false believers. And I think that our churches would be much less polluted and people would take us more seriously if we took sin seriously. Um, How many times have, uh, you know, has a deacon or elder gotten a divorce uh, and no one knows why, no one knows the details, if it was legitimate reason, if there was infidelity, or if, you know, he just got tired of being married to this woman. Why do we not know this? We are all called to be involved in each other's lives. I've had people tell me, well, look, people's personal lives, that's none of my business. Well, not according to Scripture. According to Scripture, it absolutely is your business. It absolutely is, especially when it comes to, you know, someone's marriage and if there's sexual immorality or abuse One of the reasons people make their marriage vows in front of other people, in front of an audience, is so you can help them walk the road of their marriage. You can help hold them accountable. You can say, I was there when you made a vow before God and before your spouse that you would not cheat on them, that you would be faithful, and you've been unfaithful. Are you willing to repent of that? Are you willing to be restored? Are you willing to make things right? And if not, well, that's just not a sign of a true Christian A true Christian is dead to sin. This is what Romans 6 says. Dead to sin, alive in Christ. If we are living in sin, then we are not actually saved. The Bible is very clear on that. And so church discipline allows us to distinguish the sheep from the goats. Okay, It is the litmus test by which we can determine someone's salvation, or at least try to determine where we think they stand so that they can be a part of the church or not. The church needs to be a pure, different entity in this world. This world has enough people that do horrible, terrible things. We don't need people that do horrible, terrible things and also claim to be Christian. Let them recognize that they're not. And so one of the comforts for me is I know that if I were to begin to fall away, I have close Christian female friends that would reach out to me and be like, hey, what is going on? I know that there are people surrounding me that are committed to my spiritual well-being, that if I'm caught in a sin, they are going to try to restore me. They are going to confront me. I mean, a true friend is not someone who just tells you what you want to hear and pats you on the back as you are you know, driving down a road where the bridge is out. No, a true friend is going to do everything they can to see that you make it to heaven to see that you are restored. And so uh, church discipline usually looks like, um, 
you know, the one-on-one -on -one going to someone, uh, and then if they're not repentant, then they aren't repentant in front of two or three people, then you usually want to bring it to the attention of uh, your pastor and a couple others. Hopefully you have a church with uh, multiple elders, um, but if not, I think it's good to bring it to the pastor and maybe, um, well, I guess two or three of your trusted friends would already know about it. So that might be sufficient. It's not a, you know, one-by-one -one formula, step-by-step. -step. It's more of guidelines and uh, parameters that we are to, uh, to stay in, guardrails, if you will, of how to handle it. And then once the pastor and a few other people uh, try to talk to the person and they still aren't repentant, then you can go before um, the church body and let them know what's going on uh, so they can be praying for this person, so they can be reaching out to this person, and so that they know that this person is actively under church discipline. Um, many times when people's sin has been found out, they'll just go to another church, and that new church doesn't ask them anything of their past church. You know, are you currently under church discipline? You know, that's something else we should do. When someone says they want to be a member of our church, we should say, okay, awesome. Where did you go to church before? I'd like to talk to your pastor. Because if they're currently under church discipline and they just ran away, then the new church should pick up where the old church left off and be like, mm, we're not going to let you be a part of us if you're living in sin. Like, this is just not the way of Christ. So in conclusion, um, that is what church discipline is. It is meant to restore people. It is not meant to shame people or declare them uh, lost forever and going to hell. It is supposed to be a painful means by which God brings people back to himself if you think about it, if you have cancer, if you do nothing, what happens to the cancer? It spreads and it gets worse. You want to do chemo, radiation, and it's going to ravage your body. It's going to make things very painful for you. But in the end, you will be better for having been treated. And so that is what church discipline is supposed to do. Get rid of the cancer of sin. It's a painful thing, but in the end, it's a very beautiful thing. And it has brought many, many people back to Jesus. As always, thanks for listening. You can send me any feedback or questions to my Facebook or email me at blamibo.go at hushmail.com. That's B-L-A-M-I-B-O dot G-O at hushmail.com. Thank you and God bless.